Welcome to Do Better Research, a learning-focused podcast about research methods. My name is Dr Suzanne Albury, and I'll be guiding you through research methods to become a better researcher, both for academic study and professional practice. This episode will explore the use of interviews and focus groups as methods for data collection and some of the nuances and challenges of using online technologies to facilitate them. We'll be talking to two guests, Dr Sue Hollenrake, Associate Professor in Social Work at the University of Suffolk, and Kate Nudds, the career coach with the mindset of a personal trainer and talent development partner at Derivco Sports. Sue, welcome to the Do Better Research podcast. Thank you very much for joining me today. Well, thank you very much for asking me. (laughs) So I'm going to ask a question that I ask all of my guests on this podcast, which is what is it you enjoy about doing research? Um, Well, I guess it links also to my profession, which is social work. And I've been in social work either as a practitioner, a manager or a a social work lecturer, an academic for 40 years now. And it sustained my interest throughout. And I think it's about um, at bottom, it's a, a curiosity and interest in other people and their lives and wanting to find out about things, about things that have happened to people, their experiences and, and how they've processed and managed those experiences where they've got into difficulties um, and, and about trying to change things. So for me, you know, having done mo- most of my research is social work um, oriented, then it's been about focusing on, on, on other people and their lives to make a difference, um, to improve their lives in some way and, um, and focus on, on issues that are in, important to them. Um, and help towards making changes, like I say. So, you know, social research highlights social issues and ultimately hopes to change and improve things for people. And it also, it connects for me as well with professional values, social work values about, you know, being an, a sensitive and, and non-judgmental researcher or practitioner and empathetic, even, even at times therapeutic, um, because, of the beneficial effects of telling one story and being listened to um, with a hope as well, as I say, of, of <clears throat> promoting some change. And there's something about the sort of um, the systematic way you do the research. It appeals to me in the sort of, you know, having a sense of order and, and process that you go through. I, I like that. I'm not somebody who likes a chaotic approach. So. <laughs> I like that. It, it appeals to the process-driven side of you as well as this kind of curiosity, cu- creative side as well. It kind of brings everything together. Absolutely. And I think, yes, the creative side, you know, of of, of, of having a vision and putting it together and, and breaking it down into, you know, manageable um, sections um, and coming up with something, yes, that, that's, that's new and different, gives a, a new perspective on things. That's brilliant. Thank you. One of the other questions I sent you uh, was about your favourite research project. So I wonder if you could outline what your favourite research project has been and why. Right. Okay. Well, this arose out of casual conversations because um, 
as part of running the social work program um, in Ipswich, which I used to do, I used to link a lot with outside organisations, both for what they could bring to the social work teaching and also what we could um, do for them. Um, and so out of these casual conversations, because I was part of a kind of a, a group that they used to, this, this organisation for disabled people in Ipswich, run for disabled people by disabled people. So as, as part of um, their um, uh, operations, they, they had a sort of uh, a, a group that supported things that they were doing that I was part of. Um, and also in that group was a researcher from social services based in Ipswich, um, uh, myself. And in the sort of a course of conversations, um, it emerged that they were looking to develop a, a clearer understanding of, of the views and perspectives of disabled people across the county, because they'd only been established, I think, back in 2013. And we're talking about 2015, 14, 15, really, when this started. So, um, and it took a couple of years to complete. So we started then to talk about how how we could um, help with this and use our skills. And, and um, we were part of an initial audit of existing services that we, we did. So it was a mixed methods approach, I better say that as well. We did an initial audit of what services were out there already. Suffolk County Council already had some um, some knowledge and, and um, that they could share about the numbers, for example, of, of disabled people across the county and, and what kinds of services they were using. But also they wanted to, um, you know, consult um, and, and, and talk to people with disabilities across the county about their experiences um, generally of life, what were the barriers, what what, what helped um, and uh, them to you know things like accessing um, things they needed, and um, and what was the um, kind of quality of their experiences really, what worked and what didn't work in their lives. So to gain this better understanding of what it's like to be a disabled person living in Suffolk, we we thought through how to to do this and decided that we would really need for that qualitative bit. So we got the numbers and we got the sort of kind of picture of, of what already existed in terms of services and support. Uh, but we needed these experiences and, and perceptions of disabled people across the county. So we um, we decided we we would need um, to do a, a sort of qualitative part of the research there um, with in-depth interviews and for that we also thought that we really needed disabled researchers who had insider knowledge and expertise um, about the situation and that that would work better for interviewing other disabled people than having a non-disabled person who didn't you know who was an outsider and didn't have that kind of insider knowledge so what we needed to do was support and train expert re researchers who are disabled or affected by long-term uh, mental health conditions to undertake the research with their greater understanding of, of, of disability issues. So that's what we did. Um, and we trained a, a small group of researchers. We identified the participants all through the organization itself and uh, we had one particular named person within that organization one of the workers a development worker who connected us with the uh, and was part of our kind of research management team really um, and um, connected us with uh, potential 
researchers and also participants. And then we did a, a training course for the researchers and, um, and then uh, set up interviews, which actually took place at the university because we have good disability access. And, and we found a lot of things in relation to barriers and difficulties, um, and it gave voice to people with disabilities in terms of what they needed to change. Um, and what I enjoyed about it was, well, that whole process about skilling up um, the expert researchers and eliciting their, their talents and knowledge that they already had, and then basically building on their communication skills to um, enable them to conduct um, the interviews. Um, and what emerged from those researchers was just their enjoyment of what they were doing and the sense that you know they were doing something really positive giving a voice to their own as well as other, the other people that they were interviewing their their experiences particularly of things that weren't working for them and were barriers for them leading, leading a normal life so um, their confidence grew as well through that that, that training period we we did about half a dozen sessions with them at the university um and um yes their confidence grew that was just so enjoyable to see really and to be part of that and the outcomes that we had when we asked them about their experience having done interviews were things like you know one researcher who had a background um being um, a fisherman up in Great Yarmouth or Lowestoft sorry was um you know and had had mental health problems this person said that um these were some of the best days of my life uh, you know he'd really felt valued and that was really important you know because we were we were kind of strengths building and that was what helped with the confidence increasing and and I think the other thing was that another thing I mean was that it was all co-produced um so there was an equal status between the researchers and the respondents and ourselves the three of us who were kind of managing the project too we we were all on the same level we'd all got stuff to learn and stuff to produce together and make decisions together about. So so it was research with a real purpose of, of change. And I learned so much about the experiences of, of disabled people as well. So it was a real insight for me personally. So that's why I, I really enjoyed it. That's really interesting, particularly about the use of like the expert researchers, isn't it? Because if you think a lot of students will be doing research in organisations in which they work or in organisations in which they're hoping to work or, or, or in sectors in which they work. And we tend to think of being within as having some kind of bias, which isn't good for a researcher, but that's just not the case. That kind of insider knowledge is sometimes really important and really valuable, isn't it? It is. I mean, outsider knowledge can be equally important because you can go into something with a naivety, which means you will ask some quite basic questions and you won't make assumptions just, you know, based on the fact that you've got quite a bit of knowledge and, and recognize that knowledge so that that's that can be the danger but what we did was we had um meetings together with the researchers where we did quite a bit of self-reflection and 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 thinking about what were you know for example with the individual researchers who'd got very similar experiences to those they were researching you know they had to think about the questions they were asking 
were they asking open enough questions or were they making assumptions? And, you know, so, so there had to be a level of self-awareness and self-reflection that we, we discussed quite a lot in the groups. That's an excellent point and something I'm definitely hoping to highlight to the students that might be listening. So what kinds of research lend themselves to conducting interviews in focus groups? Right. Well, you know, obviously they want they used when you want firm grounding in the real world of, of respondents. So, you know, it's really going to be, from my perspective anyway, it's qualitative research because, you know, I'm looking for that detail and depth. Obviously, you can use interviews in quantitative research, but then you're asking very focused questions. So, you know, I'm talking about data collection, like in the research that, that I've just mentioned, where your data collection methods um, will elicit the depth and, and, and detail and give you the, the ability to, pro- to probe. You know, so that that's why interviews, that, that's one of the important things for interviews, that, that the need to be sensitive to the person you're interviewing, to be prepared, but to have, you know, a kind of like um, an interview schedule with broad areas that you want to, to cover so that the power is, is is shared with the person you're researching in terms of the um, you know where, where the interview's going so that it gives them the opportunity and, and and you need good listening skills to um, guide that process as well you know you need open-ended questions um, in your interview for exploring and and broadening where you you know the, the opportunity for the the respondent to talk um, but then you also need sometimes some closed questions to to for, for clarification and, and precision of meaning but um, you know it's essentially it's a, a goal directed conversation uh, but it has to be very flexible as well so so yeah it, it's you know that kind of qualitative research where you want that detail and depth and and I think in-depth interviews provide the most flexible I think type of of research instrument but they depend on the skill of the interviewer to ask the right kind of questions the broad questions initially and then then focusing down and, and probing and using listening skills and, and and verbal skills that's a really really good point especially about the the listening it's very easy to have your questions in front of you and ask your questions yeah and and kind of not really hear the answers that you're guess you're given to be able to delve deeper into what they what they're saying and it's very easy I know I've done it before where I've got to the end of an interview and I thought well I don't really understand what that person has meant by that particular comment or that particular phrase and then you've got to go back and ask them for some clarification later and that can be quite a complicated process yes exactly so yes it's about listening to yourself as well as listening to them throughout you know at times summarizing summarizing what you think they've said in order to then check out that that is what they have said, what what they mean, and give them an opportunity to correct that if if you've not listened and and, and understood enough. And I love what you said about sharing the power as well. You know, the researcher doesn't hold all of the power. The participant, the interviewee also has some of that, and it is a shared process and a relationship in that way. Exactly that. Because you want them to feel free and safe enough to openly express whatever you know their thoughts and feelings are but to feel safe enough to 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 say what what they think that they could feel judged about so you've got to give that non-judgmental got to convey that non-judgmentalism so that you know that they're not going to 
feel unable to um, to say what they really think and feel. That actually leads really nicely into my next question, which is how how do you go about preventing those leading questions and making sure interviewees don't tell you what you what they think you want to hear? And I know you sort of you. You touched on that briefly when you were talking about the training that was offered to your uh, expert researchers in that research project that you enjoyed. Yeah, it's about that equal relationship, you know, which may involve some kind of self-disclosure from you in order to make them feel comfortable and, and, and safe. But in terms of leading questions, I think it's about preparing beforehand as well and thinking through what sort of questions you're asking, you know, and are they open questions in semi-structured or unstructured interviews that, that give control to the participant, yeah? It's skilled. It's back to skilled interviewing, picking up on, in terms of, say, things that you they think you want to hear and that they're pleasing you in some, some way. I think it's about setting out that relationship that's open and, and equal from the beginning with a bit of maybe self-disclosure, reassurance about anonymity and confidentiality and answering their questions at the beginning too so that they feel, feel safe to say what they really feel rather than what they think they ought to say or what they think you might want to hear. I mean, for example, oh, I can think many years ago for my doctoral research I was um, an ex-social worker interviewing people who had received social work services and I mean I declared at the beginning my profession and my professional experience and for many of the interviewees they've not had very good experiences of social workers or um, the services that they'd been provided with and you know, they could have just said, oh, because, cause, you know, they saw me as a professional social worker that, um, you know, they, they might have wanted to sort of protect my feelings and not say anything negative about the profession. They might really have wanted to say, well, actually, you know, I've had several social workers who were absolutely useless and, and um, made things worse rather than better. Um, and I was really disappointed. And I wouldn't want them not to say that. Um I needed to to learn in order to make a difference. So it would be part of laying that kind of issue out at the beginning in a you know preparatory way, highlighting the sort of our different positions. You know, myself as a prof- an ex professional social worker, themselves as users of service, and what that might mean. So highlighting that issue that could get in in the way. So, and then I think throughout the interview, it's about your communication skills again. Empathy, sensitivity, being respectful, non-judgmental, and, and also listening and picking up on inconsistencies that, you know, somebody might say one thing, but actually their face betrays something different. So you can point that out and say, well, I'm just wondering, you know, you're saying that, but you're also, to me, looking a bit uncomfortable about it. You know, is there something you might want to add? Or just prompting like that can, can be helpful to get over those sorts of, um, of, of difficulties. That's a really interesting point, isn't it? That we, we think of interviews in terms of the data we collect, which will be verbal and then transcribed. But actually, there's so much more to an interview than that, isn't it? You've got this the, that aspect of body language, which is so important for communication. Yeah. That we can and and should in some cases pick up on and kind of just draw out to see if there's anything else going on there. Yeah, exactly. It's about the message beneath the message and reflecting back sometimes the, the, the content and the feeling of what's been said in order to 
probe a bit more. I mean, just an example I can think of was, you know, like from the um, the research that I mentioned earlier with the disability organisation. I'm not saying this happened, but you could have we would, could have been talking about access for people in wheelchairs onto public transport, like you know, a train, and um, you could ask a question about you know what their experience has been like, and they just say something like, "Oh, I just have to plan and, and get on with it." Because there are a lot of difficulties involved for a, you know, uh, a disabled person in a wheelchair accessing a train. You've got to get the ramp, but you've got to ring the station up beforehand to get it there in place. So you've always got to plan ahead. You can't be spontaneous. So you could get just kind of throwaway comment like that, but then you'd need to pick up on the frustration and and, and explore that. So about those kinds of communication techniques to elicit the information and to to get somebody to really open up about what they really feel that's a really good point isn't it in terms of you've got a body language that, that sense of frustration actually the tone of their voice but also if they if they you, you know they might say something in a in a quite sarcastic way as oh yeah it's fine isn't it yeah and if you just read that you wouldn't necessarily know that it sounded or was delivered with no that kind of anger or frustration or irritation that's right yeah and and it's about i, th- I think developing or adopting an unconditional acceptance as well to Mm. encourage interviewees or participants to to really open up and and overcome what might be a fear of criticism or judgment so that you know they feel accepted in what they're saying that that's their lived experience and that's what's real for them i could talk about this for hours i think i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to move us on otherwise i know i'm gonna be here for too long i'm gonna keep you too long (laughs) (laughs) so moving from in-depth interviews into focus groups i mean one of the big challenges with focus groups is managing that focus group isn't it it's not just like that one-to-one interaction so how do you manage different personalities that arise and how do you how do you manage focus groups well yes to avoid individual members dominating um, and others being then afraid to voice their their true opinions. Well, I think you've got to think about selection for members in the group and it depends on, you know, where you're doing your interview and, and, and who you're wanting to involve. Because I think, for example, if you're interviewing in an organisation where people know each other and you may have people, you know, of different power status in the group then you know it's going to be difficult for some members with less power to say things about whatever it is to do with the organization that you you're discussing that you know are critical maybe of of either the organization more broadly or or specific managers so you know that would be setting people up to fail really in that one Mm. so you've got to think about who you're selecting to be with each other and I think the groups need to be large enough to, to generate some diversity of opinions as well but small enough to allow everyone to share in the discussion so you don't need you don't want too big a group either it might be better in some circumstances if, if, if members don't know each other and certainly don't have that kind of power relation that you're not inhibiting fresh opinions and and people's real feelings and and views from from emerging so I think that's one thing is is to to remember to to sort of plan so that you're not going to you know have people sort of walking into what are going to be difficult situations and I think it's again it's back to skilled facilitation as well that's required 
being sensitive to the group process, listening and observing, you know, watching people's body language. Um, if they look like, you know, they're holding back, you can possibly see from their body language. Um, and, um, you know, picking up on that uh, as well as, as, as what's said. And, you know, because otherwise, you know, diversity is lost and, and there's a kind of group think that can take over that becomes, you know, just the dominant people and their ideas. And uh, so, yeah, it's it's about intervening sensitively. Um, you know, you can't just say, oh, you over there, shut up. And, uh, <laughs> you know, there's somebody else. Over. You've got to do it very sensitively so that, you know, you're not undermining somebody who may also have some very important points to share, but they're just sharing and sharing, you know, and, and enable, you know, others to, to enter into the discussion just by giving them just a little bit of a nudge and, and helping them with, with your interventions just to, um, you know, your sensitive interventions, that is. Again, you don't want to put them on the spot either, um, but, but you know, maybe an, a, a kind of more open question about is there anything anybody else would like to say, that kind of thing. And I know this wasn't a question that I sent. Thinking about focus groups and particularly thinking about at the moment, we're conducting a lot of our research online, so not face to face. Yeah. And it's looking increasingly likely that any students over the next, at least the next sort of 12 months, we're we're currently in September 2020, will be conducting virtual research rather than face-to-face research. What do you think are some of the additional challenges, particularly for focus groups, in conducting them online? I think it's, you know, quite similar in some ways to doing a lecture online as well. I mean, well, in the sense that, yes, it's very hard to get a feel of the dynamics of the group because, you know, you're one removed, you're not in the room and you can miss or, again, just not be able to, to see, depending on how you do it, the, um, you know, the facial language, the body express, body expression, all those kinds of things can be information that you're missing out on um, or, or you're not getting enough of because of um, the technology. So, you know, that, that can make it much harder to facilitate sensitively. I mean, just to add, it's not something I've ever done, but I could also imagine that, you know, it depends on people's individual relationships with technology as well and how expert they feel. But I, I, I could imagine it feeling quite off-putting to some people, some groups, um, especially people who are less tech savvy really as well that it, it could feel quite limiting in that sense too yeah it's a really good point isn't it we have to think about what excludes people from participating or excludes them from their voice being heard and yeah and i mean this kind of interviewing is all about voice isn't it and particularly from my perspective i'm speaking here as a social work researcher it's it's often about giving voice to people you know who are often not heard so you know it really is about making the um uh you know enabling them as much as possible to um to be fully participative absolutely well sue thank you very much that's been really interesting all right thanks very much Kat, welcome to the Do Better Research podcast. It's great to have you here. Thank you very much for joining me. I wonder if you would mind outlining for our listeners a little about um, who you are and what your professional role is. Sure, yeah. So I'm Kat, as you said. Um, I am talent development partner for Derivco Sports um, based in Suffolk. uh, And that's a role that's based in the learning and development department. So designing and creating workshops and, and training 
uh, in-house for sort of softer skills, but also leadership and management as well. Excellent. Thank you very much. So what role does doing research play in your professional experience? So um, we've had to do a lot of research recently around the best way to take and develop our training um, that was all face to face and then now try and do that all online. So a lot of focus groups, a lot of um, different individual conversations around you know, what people are, are, how they feel about online training and how we can make it better and how we can get people to join in and participate, um, which is one of our sort of biggest, biggest challenges, really, that trying to get people to participate in, in workshops where it, it should be a really interactive session rather than, you know, me just training and them just listening. So participation is, is really key for us. So it's been research around you know, how, how we're going to do it. And then once we've done it, it's then looking at you know, has it worked? How well has it worked? What changes can we make? So it's a bit of an ongoing research process, really. That's really interesting. You said you, you struggled to have people engage in the same way online as as in face-to-face so in terms of the the kind of engagement in the activities and workshops why do you think that is yeah we found it completely different and I think um I think people are afraid of cutting across people um in a room you can you can see when someone's about to talk um Mm. there isn't really that 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 preempt when it's when it's online so once a cut once people have sort of cut across each other a few times they then you know decide not not to then participate because they, they don't want to cut across anybody else it is just such a different feeling on online and you know even though we all have cameras on and we, we all have our, our videos on there is just a certain it's it, it has a different feel to it and it's difficult to describe what that feel is and why it's so different uh, but mainly the 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 cutting across from people, I think, is is the biggest challenge that we're that we're trying to to come up with. So one of the the kind of the, the way that we've got around this is that that when you're directing questions, rather than directing questions to the whole group, you tend to have to direct questions individually so that you know that that person will then you know be able to answer. Um, and gr- that's where the group discussions become slightly more difficult because the the participation is, like I say, is is more difficult because people don't want to cut across each other, so they end up not saying anything. Kind of gets the point of an interactive. Um, that's really interesting though isn't it that the move to online for various reasons um, particularly in the current climate has is, is been really important but at the same time you lose so much of the the non-verbal communication aspects in a group so in terms of having a focus group or, or having groups of people in a workshop there is that difficulty in understanding that almost the social cues and the social etiquette online versus it face-to-face Yes, absolutely. And and in a face-to-face workshop, we would do all sorts of different icebreakers um, and getting people sort of almost warmed up and um, doing some sort of quite physical activities, which, of course, you just can't do on, online. Um, so it's, it's research into how we can come up with online icebreakers that, that just break that, that tension and allow people to, to feel more relaxed about being online. There's just a whole bunch of a different management issues around managing group interactions because mm. I have the same thing when it comes to teaching you know it's it feels less almost like less of a discussion and more of I'm asking a question and aren't asking a particular individual and then are moving on to the next individual and then the next rather than that kind of the, the ideas bouncing off one another and that can be quite a challenging social dynamic to manage I think Yes, I think you're right. It has lost that. The, the social element is lost as well because the camaraderie is not there either. So as much as you lose the important discussions, you, you also lose the slightly more relaxed conversations that allow people to be themselves and allow you know, perhaps those jokes to enter. Um, because if, if people aren't participating, they're not participating 
from a you know from a discussion perspective but they're also not participating from that that fun element as well so it takes that out of the workshop um and i'm, I'm a real advocate for, for making it fun um i think people learn better when they're when they're um you know having a bit of fun at, at the same time as as learning so it is it is something that i'm trying to work out what to do and how to how to how to work around that and, and that's where the research comes in with the people that have have gone through certain workshops you know what can we do better next time what did work for you what didn't work for you and then using that data to to make sure that we get it better next time so how do you go about collecting that data um we do uh, lots of different forms um so after a, a workshop has happened then we'll, we'll send out forms to gauge people's um, reactions and there's all sorts of different questions on there about you know how they felt and um what that what, you know, what could they do differently what could you know the trainer do differently what what could the the group participation do differently so we could try and get as much information from them as we can and then i'll have individual discussions with people as well if they're open to being quite open and frank with me and saying you know that that worked or that particular part of that didn't work or this from from my perspective as as the learner this is what I would do or this is how I would change it. So uh, it's kind of twofold, really, as much um, kind of interviewing as I can get from people, but also the, the sort of traditional forms as well. So in terms of those those interviews that you do, I think that's those one to one conversations can be a little bit easier, can't they, to manage in terms of get, making sure your participants and the people that you're talking to are feeling involved and are able to engage and are able to be quite honest. How do you prevent things like leading questions in those interviews to make sure that they're not telling you what you want to hear or are your participants very much happy to be kind of almost brutally honest with you yes and that that's the the challenge because um the forms are anonymous so actually people and that's why we do it so so i will talk to people that are happy to be open and honest um but the forms are are very much anonymous therefore that's why we'll tend to perhaps get slightly different um outcomes of those forms because they're anonymous but uh, the the conversations that i have with people you know up front or initially are you know this i need you to be you know as frank and honest and it, it is a challenge because I, i'm also the trainer so they i think people again prefer to do it anonymously anonymously because I'm asking them to rate me, you know, face to face. How do you feel about me and my performance? And, and that's quite difficult for someone if they have got some negatives. It's it, depending on, on on them. They they may find that a bit of a challenge to tell me to to my face that actually it wasn't very good. <laughs> um, but I want them to. You know, that, that's the whole point of the conversation. And I'm very honest with that up front. And I'm and I make sure I say, look, you know, there's no right or wrong answers with this. It's truly your perspective. Uh, but I need to know if, if there's if there's any improvements that you would make, then you know, please let me know. And if you don't like my style then you know we have other trainers so so we can potentially you know other people can can run the same same workshop but it would be in a different style and that's almost what we need gauging which style works for which which type of person really as as the learner that's a really important point though is that when you're doing interviews is to be quite accepting about the fact that you're not necessarily going to be everybody's cup of tea so not everybody's going to react to you in the same way or, or a positive way that they might react to other people Yes, and that's right. And it's it's knowing that and having the you know the confidence in in your own abilities and your own self to say actually that's okay. You know, I know mm. not everyone's going to like my style, and and I get that absolutely. Um, like just like I don't necessarily like everybody every every trainer's style, and you hopefully are able to then sort of choose the style that you do like, and then you gravitate towards that 
that type of, of trainer and therefore that's probably where you'll get the best um, learning as well because you because you've got a better because you've got better interaction with that trainer and you prefer their style I always think you learn better when when the when you when the trainer is more your style yeah absolutely I mean you know coming from a lecturing background I, I completely agree and I know that I'm not necessarily everyone's cup of tea and it is a confidence thing though isn't it knowing that you kind of you do have to build it up over a little while and you have to have a certain amount of confidence that just because one person doesn't react well to your style or doesn't like your style as much as someone else is another another as you say trainer or another lecturer's that's not necessarily a reflection on you it's just the way things are yes absolutely if everybody told me that they didn't quite like my style then I might have a bit of a problem (laughs) (laughs) but I do understand yeah as long as as long as it's not everyone because otherwise then I do need to make some changes myself yeah it it is it's just personal preference isn't it absolutely and and like I say you just have to be confident in that in in your own abilities really and as as, like I say as as long as some people are are appreciative of of your style then then that's okay so you talked about also doing focus groups and obviously the workshops are kind of a similar thing in terms of the interactivity that you might have with a group of people. How do you manage diff- different and difficult personalities in terms of dominant voices? But you have sometimes the opposite problem, don't you? Yes, and this is this is the, the, the sort of lack of participation. Um, again, sort of circling back to one of the first conversations that we, that we had on this, that my challenge is... is is how to get people to talk when they perhaps when they don't want to they may be nervous or they may be shy or so yeah the biggest challenge for, for me is is and, and my demographic is not necessarily the the dominance it's more the the quiet and the and the lack of participation and trying to get people to feel confident enough to participate and again that's where the icebreakers come in right at the beginning that's where you don't necessarily always want to um, address people individually you do want to make the questions more to the room because you don't want to single people out so although in the first conversation I said you know you try and direct questions to people that doesn't always work because like I say you don't want to single people out and if someone doesn't want to talk you don't want to make them so that is a a challenge in itself that that, that I am working on and that we are working on um, how to increase the levels of participation but without people feeling that they have to talk if they really don't want to and I definitely think that the the icebreakers at the big at the beginning of any um, workshop that we do are are the most important because it allows people to just relax a little bit and therefore they become more open throughout the workshop so what kind of icebreakers do you use in your workshops well this is a bit trial and error at the moment so this is something (laughs) that we're we're working on so um, initially it's, it's making sure that everybody knows who everybody else is in the room or on the call as it were so because we work across different offices and and not everybody knows each other in the business we're we're a large business so it's making sure that whoever's on the call understands who else is on the call you know where they're based perhaps a little bit about them get them to talk individually about themselves and just a sort of perhaps a fun fact about themselves or something like that just so that they get used to having that conversation on online initially and then putting people into smaller breakout groups initially um, works really well because it, it allows them to talk in just twos or threes or fours rather than the main group so once they've, they've relaxed a little bit by talking in a smaller group then they seem to be slightly more happier talking in the larger group as well we, we tend to make one person the the sort of note taker and the facilitator in that smaller group and then that person then comes back into the main room online main room I say <laughs> and then it's difficult to know what to call it isn't it the, the yeah room. I tend to just call them breakout rooms and, and yeah. main Room, but yeah, I know what you mean. It's yeah, it, this slightly misleading language to yes, some extent. Yeah, the main breakout, so the breakout, breakout groups, and then the main, the main group. They come back to that, and, and again, 
they don't have to talk if they don't want to. It can be the you know the facilitator that so that that person that's sort of volunteered to be that facilitator they'll then come back and uh, discuss what's happened in that room. So again, you've got the opportunity for people to talk if they want to, but they don't have to talk if they if they don't want to. And that and that's the whole point. You don't want to force people to do something they really don't want to do, but equally you do also want them to participate. So putting them in smaller breakout groups, you know that they have participated in that in that smaller group because you can you can pop in and out of the rooms yourself as the facilitator. And you can get an idea of, you know, if anyone's not talking, then it, it's, it seems to be more acceptable and people seem to be happier if you do direct an individual um, question in a smaller group, um, then they're happy to talk, but then come back to the main room and then, and then discuss if they want to. But that, that does seem to kind of warm up the conversations by doing those smaller groups first and then coming back into the main group for, for later. I like the idea that you're warming them up, that everyone <laughs> needs kind of a really gentle introduction into this new way of, of working and this new way of working as a group as well mm, and it's not for everyone I do again you know it's, it's some people are much better in a room and, and, and it, but then again some people aren't they don't like that room and they actually prefer to be online because they're, they're by themselves and they they almost feel like they're not talking to anybody else they're just almost having you know a, a single conversation although they can see other people on the camera so again it's just personal preference and it's trying to manage as the facilitator it's trying to manage those personal preferences and almost try and think about them in advance and and how are you going to accommodate those different the different personalities in that online room I mean that in itself is not too dissimilar from conducting a similar activity workshop focus group face-to-face is it there is still a certain amount of preparation necessary to understand the different types of people that will be present the way that they might interact with each other and how you're going to manage those interactions yes that's true it's just it's it seems to be even more prevalent when it's online and and it seems to be you have to be even more aware online so as not to alienate people I guess really yeah it's it's just I think it's maybe it's just from my perspective I think it does come down to that that so much communication we we don't necessarily realize when we're face to face but so much communication isn't verbal it's the way that we're looking the way that we're moving as you said you can kind of tell when someone's about to say something whereas that's much more difficult online particularly if you've got tech issues or or like different internet speeds and connectivity issues and things like that yeah absolutely and just distractions um you know pets and cats and dogs and noises and um there's so much that that you wouldn't have in an office because you're in an office environment you know you're in a you're in a room there, there are no distractions particularly unless the fire alarm goes off um but there's all sorts of things you know, there's the door ringing or you know there's just so much else that, that can kind of go go wrong almost but but it also sometimes lightens it as well when someone's cat jumps in or, or someone's dog you know is in the background doing something it again it almost sort of takes the pressure off and it kind of relaxes the room a little bit because you, you can can have some fun with that and it's I think that's what I've learned it's I have had to as the facilitator use different things that go on as a as a, as a way of engaging people whereas in a room it would it is easier to engage people um I think because of facial expressions and it's just that warmth of being in a room together whereas online you're having to look for different things in order to make the session a bit easier for everybody that's a really good point, actually, around the distractions in an environment. So you go into a room, into a workshop or a focus group on in an office or in a particular facilitated building, and it's there are no distractions. You are there for a reason, and that's the reason, and, and you're very focused on that. Whereas yeah. at home or online, you're very much beholden to what's going on in your environment, aren't you? Yes, and you're not aware of that 
where anybody else on that call or, or and the facilitator are not necessarily aware of that and you have to be very aware of it or, or make allowances for it you don't know who else is in the house with you with, with that person that, you know you don't know what else is going on especially if they haven't got their microphone on you don't necessarily know that you know that they're, they're, their child is there you know pulling on their arm while they're trying to you know have a serious conversation and so it's just it's almost having that in the back of your mind when you're doing anything what else could be happening in that person's sort of world at that time that is a really good point and I think it's one that can't be stressed enough particularly for students doing research using online focus groups and online interviews that there is a sort of an important part of managing expectations for the, the participant but also knowing that the environment is not as shielded mm. I guess yeah. it's not as protected for the the conversation that's happening yes yes I think you're right because the idea that you know at any given point that the doorbell can go and you've got to suddenly run off and sort that out whereas you wouldn't have the doorbell when you're in, in a workshop exactly that and I'll you know my flat at the moment the, the the roof is um leaking so the contractor is sort of in and out but I'm trying to to run online workshops you know having to nip off every now and then to open the door to let him in and and it's you know sometimes I can do it without people noticing because they're they're doing something else so I can quickly turn my camera off but sometimes I have to explain it and it's that you know if I'm doing that other people are doing exactly the same so it's it's having to just keep that in the back of your mind with everything that you're doing really it also becomes much more of a personal experience doesn't it in terms of you're inviting somebody into your life in a way that you wouldn't necessarily have done if it was face to face somewhere else absolutely and and I that's a really good point because when I first when we, we, we went into lockdown right at the beginning of March and my desk initially was in my bedroom and uh, in my main bedroom and um I just it, I, I ended up having you know a lot of people in my bedroom with me and it it it, it didn't feel right after weeks and weeks of this I just thought what else can I do I need to change this situation because I don't necessarily want people seeing my bed you know they wouldn't necessarily normally we'd be in the office together and they wouldn't mm. see that in the background so I then moved into a spare room and I've made it into an office and, and things are much better but I always had that in my mind that my environment wasn't necessarily conducive to what I wanted to portray and, and you know, a lot of, and I'm aware that a lot of people haven't got the option of being in any other room, uh, and that's why I guess the backdrops are quite are quite good when um, on on some of the different um, software programs that you can use when you're you're having yeah. online um, conversations. You can change your backdrop, which I think is great for people, but then it does make you wonder what they're hiding. So there's all <laughs> that, uh, that that go on. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, when, we, when I when we went into lockdown, I, I, I originally started working in my dining room. My dining room is in my conservatory. So every time that everyone logged on, they were saying, oh, why are you sitting outside? Because they could see the brick wall of my um, my house behind me. and was wondering why I was sitting outside doing work. Well, if it was sunny, no wonder. But I don't think you'd want to now, would you? Well, I, I think the sunnier it gets, the worse it is, because it's far too hot, quite frankly, oh, yeah. which is why I ended up moving upstairs into the, into the spare room, which is, again, I turned into an office. Yeah. And I kind of very carefully curated what you can see behind me. Yes, exactly that, which you never even thought about before because it wasn't an issue. I would love yeah. to do some research on how many rooms people have used as an office during lockdown and before they've become settled on on the final place. I'd, I'd love to know because I'm sure there's been kitchen tables and dining room tables and the bed. Yeah. I'd love to know how many how many spots it's taken before you're comfortable where you are. Well, absolutely. I mean, I've got colleagues who I've I've seen a lot of their houses, and I've never seen their houses. You know, it's quite personal, though, isn't it? It it always brings you closer together. 
um, in some respects, which is, and it gives you a talking point. Like we've, we have some guys that one of them has a bike on the wall, um, you know, and some <laughs> fitness equipment and someone else. You know, has some, so it is a, it's a talking point, but you don't necessarily always want people to see your, your Well, it's okay in a team, isn't it? When you're working with your, your team and the people that you see, you would have seen every day anyway. But as soon as you invite your participants, your students into that, it becomes a slightly, yes, slightly more bizarre weird, isn't it? interaction. Mm, I like my bed. I didn't really want people to see my bed because sometimes I don't make it. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't necessarily want people to know that. <laughs> sometimes you're just too busy. Yeah, exactly. I just got out, forgot to make it. And then I'm sitting there thinking, oh, I really should. And all I can think about whilst I'm having a, you know, running a workshop is really should have made my bed behind me. Really should have made my bed behind me. <laughs> kind of takes the you know the, um, it's, it's not good to be uh you know thinking about that when you're when you're supposed to be doing something else <laughs> it's, it's that level of you're considered the expert on a particular topic when you're running a workshop or when you're running a, a focus group or you're doing an interview you're considered to be there's, there's a there is almost a sense of hierarchy which isn't necessarily a good thing but there, there there can be to then suddenly invite someone into your home in such a personal way and to demonstrate that oh you forgot to make the bed this morning well people is that going to detract from your authority on a particular topic absolutely yeah I mean I only did that once and then I, I made sure that I never did that again but uh, <laughs> you know, it's interesting how it's changed your behavior yeah, though yes yes I've definitely changed my behaviors because of it absolutely thank you very much I really appreciate you taking the time to answer some questions for me that's fantastic my pleasure no problem at all Both Sue and Kat talk about the need for honesty from participants and how this can be difficult if the interviewer is in a position of authority or the participants feel that they might be being too harsh to criticise the facilitator directly. One of the ways we can overcome this is to break down some of this power dynamic by making it clear to the participant that they are the experts of their own lived experiences. We can also help mitigate these issues by being honest and open with our participants about the nature of our research why we're doing it and what it will be used for. As Sue mentions, this might require some disclosure on our part as the researchers, making it clear the role we play in the research process. Kat also highlights some really interesting challenges with the using online platforms to interview or facilitate focus groups, particularly in terms of inviting people into our homes in new ways. It can feel very personal, and while there are ways to mitigate this by putting on a background, for example, we need to be sensitive to the fact that the environment might not be ideal for participants to fully engage with the research process. She also talked about the difficulties in reading body language online, with participants being reluctant to talk in in case they accidentally speak over or interrupt other people. We can encourage participation by good quality facilitation, perhaps using smaller focus groups or using breakout groups with a nominated member to feed back to the larger collective. We also need to remember that when we conduct interviews and focus groups in person, not all the data we collect is verbal. Body language, facial expression and tone of voice are all vital and can be more challenging to capture and understand through online collection methods. Whether face-to-face or online, we need to be careful not to lose this richness and depth in transcription and write-up.